Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 467. It's titled, How to Analyze ETFs to Make Better Investment Decisions. Last week in episode 466 on dividend investing, I referred to an observation by Morningstar that since the beginning of 2014, investors have withdrawn $1.9 trillion from stock mutual funds. At the same time, they've added $2.9 trillion to stock exchange-traded funds. An open-end mutual fund and ETFs are investment vehicles. They are a means to invest in various assets, be it stocks, bonds, real estate, and many, many other niche strategies. To start this episode, we're going to take a look at fund flows into funds and ETFs, what has changed over the past number of years, and why ETFs have become the preferred investment vehicle for individual investors, and even, in many cases, institutional investors. We'll see why that is. And because ETFs have become so dominant and attractive, we'll look at, well, how do we go about analyzing these ETFs? Because the sheer number of ETFs outstanding can be overwhelming. First, let's take a look at a study by Morningstar looking at overall flows into both open-end mutual funds and ETFs. The difference between the two is an open-end mutual fund doesn't trade on an exchange. It trades at the end of the market day and shares of the open-end mutual fund are bought and sold at the closing net asset value. That differs from exchange-traded funds, which trade throughout the market day, and that trading occurs at a market price that may differ slightly from the net asset value. And the net asset value of a mutual fund or an ETF is the value of the assets held by that investment vehicle divided by the number of shares outstanding. So that would be the net asset value per share. Now, there are market mechanisms in place to keep an ETF's price in line with its net asset value. If we look then at overall net flows into mutual funds and ETFs across the world, in 2022, there was over $500 billion of outflow from funds and ETFs. In 2023, there was a $66 billion inflow. Let's contrast that to 2021. This is coming out of the pandemic or during the pandemic, great deal of liquidity from government programs and individuals, institutions were very bullish about buying everything, including stocks, bonds, crypto, futures, commodities. Overall net flows in 2021 was $2.4 trillion, but 2022, half billion left and only $66 billion added in 2023. If we look at the categories, most categories saw outflows. The only exception was fixed income, about $400 billion of flows into fixed income. When we talk about these funds, open-end mutual funds and ETFs, it excludes money market mutual funds. And, And clearly there was money that went into money market mutual funds. These are cash equivalent vehicles. They're not part of this $66 billion of of net inflows into funds and ETFs. 
Morningstar pointed out, because there's this idea, well, there's all this money on the sidelines that potentially could flow in to funds and ETFs, but they included a chart in the report that I'll link to in the show notes, where it showed that global money market assets as a percent of long-term assets held by investors is 17%. And in the chart that they show, it, it hasn't really changed a whole lot. It's generally been between 14 and 17% since 2013. So about a decade, right around the same percentage. We can compare that to 2008, where money market mutual funds made up 45% of long-term assets. So there has been a little more flow into money market mutual funds and into bonds in 2023 with flows out of stocks and other assets. One of the other changes that occurred in 2023 that Morningstar points out is that passive investing strategies, sometimes called indexing, strategies that seek to track a specific index, and that index will have rules that are used to construct the index, those passive strategies slightly surpassed more active strategies for the first time. Back in 1995, only 2% of assets were passively managed. Now, at least in the U.S., it's very close to 50%. And if we look at U.S. equity and bond outflows, year by year by year, there's outflows out of active mutual funds and ETFs into passive mutual funds and ETFs, year by year by year. In 2023 alone, $267 billion left the largest active managers, including American funds, lost $64 billion in assets, Fidelity, $31 billion. And as those active fund families lose assets, a big portion of those assets are going to ETF families. The fund family, including both mutual funds and ETFs with the largest market share, is Vanguard, with around a 28% market share of total U.S. assets. Back in the year 2000, they had 11% share, much smaller because the active fund families, such as American funds, had a, had a much larger market share. iShares, it's owned by BlackRock, has a 10% market share now. Back in the year 2000, less than 1%. Same for State Street, which owns the Spider ETF brand. 5% market share now, less than 1% back in the year 2000. So we've had a, a big change with big fund families, and we'll look at the bigger ETF families here in a moment, but active is losing out to passive. 62% of passive investing is in mutual fund. The rest is in ETFs. Now, earlier, I gave the total market share of Vanguard, iShares, and State Street. That was their market share of both active and passive. If we just look at the passive manager, who has the largest market share, that's Vanguard with 37%, followed by iShares at 15%, then State Street at 7%. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from one of this week's sponsors, Long Angle. Investing in private markets is challenging. Done right, they offer the potential for exceptional gains. Done wrong, they present much greater risk of loss. The difference between success and failure in private markets comes down to expertise and access. Long Angle is a private community of 2,500 very high net worth investors who leverage their collective expertise and scale to access and underwrite some of the world's best alternative asset investments. After reviewing hundreds of opportunities, Long Angle Diligence deal teams greenlight a dozen deals each year. Asset classes range from private equity, search funds, and private credit 
to Secondaries Real Estate and Venture. Long Angle is a community of investors, not a wealth manager. Members make their own investment decisions on a deal-by-deal basis. Members are treated as partners on every investment with full transparency to investment team diligence and underwriting. All members receive equal access to negotiated fee discounts powered by the community's $30 billion in collective assets. Membership is free but requires an interview with a current community member as well as validation of investable assets. Learn more at longangle.com. That's L-O-N-G-A-N-G-L-E.com. Longangle.com. There have been some gainers in the actively managed ETF space. Traditionally, when we said ETFs, we thought of passive management. The first ETF was the the S&P Spider that tracked the S&P 500 index. Most ETFs initially were ETFs that tracked capitalization-weighted or size-weighted indexes, and that still is the bulk of the assets. But there's now actively managed ETFs that have come on the horizon, which aren't following a specific index. They're making active decisions. And some of those ETFs are transparent and disclose their holdings every day. In fact, at this point, most actively managed ETFs do disclose their holdings throughout the trading day in many cases, but at least daily so that investors can see what is being held. But if we look at the largest actively managed ETFs, there's something interesting about it. The largest, and this ETF has $30.5 billion in assets, but took in close to $13 billion just in 2023. It's the JP Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF. It's the largest actively managed ETF. But if you look at what they're doing, they say that they run a defensive equity portfolio using bottom-up research, and then they do an option overlay. They are writing or selling call options to generate income. This is an income strategy with a dividend yield over the past year of almost 10%, and the SEC yield is 7.9%. That's the largest actively managed ETF. Most of the return is generated from the income. This is not a traditional stock selection approach. When we think of the American funds, for example, these well-regarded fund family or, or fidelity, the active mutual funds were focused on security selection, seeking to outperform the S&P 500 or some other index. The largest actively managed ETF isn't so much trying to outperform an index through stock selection. They're just trying to generate income for the shareholders. If we look at the other largest actively managed ETF, seven of them are from Dimensional, DFA. DFA is is sort of active in that they run incredibly diversified funds and ETFs with hundreds of holdings. They're active in the sense that there isn't a specific index that they're tracking, but the whole idea of their approach is some of them are are more value-oriented, but they basically have their selection criteria, but it's it's a factor approach, just trying to generate performance by either value or broad exposure to the market. It's essentially passive, very, very low turnover. It's just that there isn't necessarily an index that it's tracking. Some of the other, Advantis is is similar to DFA, the Advantis U.S. small cap value, one of the largest actively managed ETFs, incredibly diversified. This is not like an active manager with 
50 holdings trying to figure out which holdings will do better than the S&P 500. And so when we, when we talk about well, active versus passive, it gets a little muddled because some of the largest actively managed ETFs are kind of passive in their approach. It's just that there isn't an index that they're tracking. The one large actively managed ETF that is in this list is the ARK Innovation ETF with $9.3 billion. This is clearly active management trying to add value through security selection. And that's when I think of active, that's typically what I think of. Security selection, seeking to outperform through security selection. But many of the strategies and many of the active strategies ETFs are more factor-based and not focused on security selection. And as a result, it can get a little muddled of what is passive versus active. And there's this idea that, well, there's a passive indexing bubble. And there's not really a consensus on that. As passive management has gotten a, a larger and larger share, it isn't necessarily just going to size-weighted indexes. There are all these other niche strategies, dividend investing, for example, that could be considered passive depending on how it's implemented. I saw a research report that I'll link to by Benarek, and he did another study. He used agents to model whether the rise in indexing has led to a pricing bubble where you have more and more funds going to size-weighted index funds and ETFs and, and whether that's pushing up the price versus had it not occurred of the underlying holdings. And his conclusion, surprisingly, is it hasn't. He did find that the rise of passive indexing can lead to more volatility of those underlying holdings. And they also found what he describes as price informativeness decreased. As more assets flow into index funds and passive ETFs, there's less discernment about what's the correct price for the underlying holdings. And this was part of our discussion last week about how Greenlight Capital, for example, David Einhorn, their approach, they're finding they're buying an undervalued company and it's that undervaluation isn't being recognized by market participants. And so they're having to choose companies where the company management themselves is seeking to reduce the undervaluation through share repurchases or increased dividends. And this research then by Paul Benarek supports that. That as passive investing increases, there's less price informativeness. But that doesn't mean that there's an indexing bubble. His research suggests that prices are not any higher for individual securities than they would be had there not been the rise in passive management. And that could be because there's so many different strategies that are, quote unquote, passive, but following thousands of different indexes with different rules different factor approaches, momentum, yield, and even other more niche strategies. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind with teams buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. 
so you get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. I know in our business, we've seen how critical it is to have the key information, our KPIs. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com David. That's netsuite.com David to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com David. ETFs are continuing to get a greater market share. Back 20 years ago, when my partners and I launched an asset management division of our advisory firm and used ETFs to implement the strategy, what we called managed portfolios at the time, that was kind of frowned upon because they were ETFs and we were an institutional asset management. And why, why would you use an ETFs? But 20 years later, ETFs are used extensively by institutions and certainly by individuals because they're a better product compared to open-to-end mutual funds. The overall fees are lower. The costs are lower. The fund families can spend less on shareholder services because investors are buying the ETF on a stock exchange. The secondary market trading, it's not trading that's occurring with the sponsor itself, or at least most of the ETF trades are not occurring with the sponsor. There's a study by iShares showed that most of trading in ETFs is in the secondary market. Now, there is primary trading with the ETF sponsors. With authorized participants, they can buy the underlying holdings of the ETF and they can trade it with the ETF sponsor to exchange it for shares of the ETF. So you have these this trading by authorized participants directly with the ETF sponsor to create and redeem new shares of the ETFs. But most of the trading is in the secondary market, individuals buying and selling securities institutions, as well as market makers, all to make sure that the market price of the ETF stays very close to the net asset value. Because of these market participants, the the trading costs, the average bid-ask spread, the difference between the sell price of an ETF and its purchase price in the U.S. is about 12 basis points, so very, very close. ETFs, because of the authorized participants, the way that new shares are redeemed and created, that provides an opportunity for ETFs to keep tax liability down by exchanging underlying holdings with a low cost basis with these authorized participants, we find that ETFs are are very tax efficient. They're not having to pass on short-term and long-term capital gains like you typically saw with open-end mutual funds. ETFs are more convenient to trade. Now, most of us don't need to be trading ETFs very often, but it is convenient, at least for me, psychologically, I want to purchase an ETF. I want to sell it. I can see what the price is in the market. I can execute the trade and I don't have to wait until the end of the day and have that anxiety about what's going to happen from now until the end of the day that could impact the price. In reality, probably not much happened, but just it's that that control to be able to sell when I want to sell or buy when I want to buy. And that is an advantage of an ETF. The fees are lower than mutual funds and the taxes are lower or they're more tax efficient. In the U.S., there are 235 ETF families, about $14.6 trillion in assets. 
3,400 ETFs. That's up from 1,850 ETFs in 2018. We've already talked about some of the largest, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Invesco, Charles Schwab, First Trust, J.P. Morgan Chase, Dimensional, Wisdom Tree, and Van Eck make up the 10 largest providers, and that comprises 74% of ETF assets. But if we look at what's going on with ETF, it's gone well beyond just size-weighted ETFs. There's just more niche sectors. If you want to invest in the global music industry, there's an ETF for it. There are are more leveraged ETFs, and there are more options-based income strategy ETFs. What we've seen is because institutional investors have become more comfortable with ETF structure, there are more institutional trading strategies that are available in the ETF wrapper. If you can think of a strategy, there's probably an ETF that mimics that strategy, which is why as individual investors, we need to have an approach to analyzing ETFs so we're not overwhelmed. One reason that we launched Asset Camp last year and continue to invest in that platform is to provide the tools and education for individual investors to be able to make well-informed decisions about index funds and ETFs, different strategies. Our approach that we're rolling out next month for Asset Camp is to be even more specific in what we're calling our monthly system of success. And we'll be doing webinars just showing people how this works and what's going on with the markets. And it starts with what happened. If we're wanting to make a portfolio change or want to understand our portfolio, we need to know what happened in the past and why. And the second thing we need to know is where are we now? We understand what the factors were that drove past performance. What are current conditions? What's the narrative driving market? What is the consensus of investors thinking? Are they overly optimistic? Are they too fearful? What areas of the stock market are most attractive? What are the risks? That's how I've approached investing my entire career. And it's why we create tools to do that, such as Asset Camp. And certainly these are things we discuss at Money for the Rest of Us Plus. And the third thing then is where are we heading? Once we know where markets stand, we can set reasonable expectations for the future. And then fourth, we take action, such as to rebalance our portfolio, but to to introduce a new area to invest in. And let's say we have found an area that we want to invest in, or someone mentions an ETF to us that looks interesting. Our premium podcast episode, Money for the Restless Plus, we look at a lot of different ETF strategies and analyze them, both to inform how we go about analyzing an ETF, but also to explore new strategies. So if you come across a new ETF and you're thinking about buying it, how do you analyze it? Well, first, just like in my book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, we should answer some questions. And the first is, what is it? Before we invest in anything, including a new TF, we need to be able to explain in simple terms the attributes of that that investing. Be able to explain some of these additional questions, such as, how does the ETF work? Most ETFs either have a white paper or certainly in the prospectus that describes how they go about investing the assets in the ETF. This is critical, especially because with over 3,400 ETFs, more and more niche strategies, we need to understand how the ETF works. What's the expected return? What's the downside risk? How does it work? Third, we need to understand who the sponsor is. How many assets do they have under management? What are some of the other ETFs that they have? Is this sort of a one-off just to see if they can attract assets? Or as you look at the different ETF families, you realize that they 
kind of have different themes or approaches. And some ETF families are, are comfortable having smaller asset balances. They might have dozens of ETFs, all with $100 million in assets, and they're not at risk of closing because they're profitable products for the company, but we need to understand who that sponsor is and what's the cost structure, which is the fourth thing. What, what are the costs? What's the management fee? How tax efficient has the ETF been? Has it, is it making distributions? If so, are they income distributions, return of capital, or are they capital gains distributions? Those are questions we ask about the ETF itself. What is it? How does it work? Who is the sponsor? What are the costs? The other three questions have to do with our portfolio and our reasons for buying the ETF. Fifth is, why are you buying it? Is this for income? Is this a niche ETF that you want to buy because you think it'll outperform the overall stock market? Are you buying it to reduce risk? Are you buying it as an experiment to learn something, to learn a, a new trading strategy and you, you're just intrigued by it? What's the story you're telling yourself by buying this ETF? We certainly need to know what we're buying, but we also ask ourselves, why are we buying it? Six is, where does it fit in our portfolio? What percent of our portfolio do we intend to put in this ETF? Why that percentage? Is it a large amount? Is it small? How does it fit within your overall portfolio? Maybe you don't want two dozen holdings in your portfolio. Maybe you want to take bigger positions. So we need to, to understand, like, where does it fit? Like, what additional diversification does the strategy add? And is, is it meaningful enough to actually add the ETF? Part of answering where does it fit is asset placement. You know, based on its tax efficiency, is it better to add this new ETF to our tax-deferred portfolio or to our taxable portfolio? The final question then is what is the time horizon? Under what conditions would we sell this ETF or is it a, a, a long-term holdings? So there's, there's a framework to analyze ETFs and I've discussed a framework for analyzing the overall market to look at what happened. Where are we now? Where are we heading? And then to take action, and those actions could be to add a new ETF to our portfolio. And to do that, we need to be able to describe what it is. How does it work? Who is the sponsor? What are the costs? Why are we buying it? Where does it fit in our portfolio? And what is our time horizon and our approach for selling the ETFs? There doesn't look like there's going to be any slowdown in, in terms of the number of ETFs outstanding. The trends that are in place to more and more ETFs, more fund flows out of active management into passive strategies, but even within the passive strategies, it's muddled because something that is active isn't really stock security based, but it doesn't have an index that is tracking, but it's incredibly diversified and looks like a passive vehicle with thousands of holdings, such as the, quote, actively managed DFA ETFs. So don't get tripped over whether this is active or passive. Understand the underlying process of the ETFs. And I think at this point, we, we don't have to worry about an indexing bubble because there's such a wide variety of approaches that it doesn't at this point appear to be impacting the pricing any more than if we didn't have these index funds because pricing can be driven by psychology of investors. The big mega cap tech stocks, that's not just an indexing thing. That's just desires of people to buy these things out of the AI hype. That ends our discussion on ETFs, how to analyze them, what's going on with the ETF market. This is episode 467. Thanks for listening.
you may be missing some of the best Money for the Rest of Us content. Our weekly Insider's Guide email newsletter goes beyond what we cover in our podcast episodes and helps elevate your investment journey with information that works best in written and visual formats. With the Insider's Guide, you can discover actionable investing insights provided only to our newsletter subscribers. Unlock greater investing confidence with high-value snippets from our premium products, plus membership and asset camp. Access exclusive news, offers, and events you won't hear about anywhere else. Further connect with the Money for the Rest of Us team and community. And when you sign up, we'll also send you our exclusive investing checklist to help you invest with more confidence right away. The Insider's Guide is the best next step to get the most out of your investment journey. If you're not on the list, go to moneyfortherestofus.com and subscribe with the Become a Better Investor sign-up box. Everything I've shared with you in, in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.